Um, this morning, we're, we're going to be looking at a text that is um, pretty greatly misunderstood. Um, it's often misused and abused. And, um, and so part of what we're going to have to do this morning as a church um, is, is maybe unlearn some things so that we can then learn what Paul is actually trying to say. One of, one of the dangers that we have in the church is that we grab a verse completely out of context and then we use it like a Swiss army knife to just stab every problem. And, and one of those verses is in this section that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so we're going to look at verses 19 through 28. Um, and I'm, if you're taking notes, I'm going to break it down into three sections. Uh, first is going to be 19 through 22, and that's going to be Paul on prophecy. Paul on prophecy. And then verse 23 through 24 is going to be Paul's prayer and promise. Paul's prayer and promise. And then verse 25 through 28 will be prayers and kisses. Great way to end the book, right? Prayers and kisses. All right, so looking at this section, starting in verse 19, um, let me just read 19 through 22, and we're, we're going to take each kind of chunk as we go. Paul says this, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, the first division that we're going to start with in this text is actually picking up from where we left off last week. And, and if you remember last week, if you were here, I uh, covered verses 16 through 18, and this was all about believers speaking to God, right? We're praying unceasingly. But now, the flip side of this, the second part of this, is God speaking to and through believers. So, 16 through 18 is us speaking to God, and then verses 19 through 22 is God speaking to us and through us as believers. Now, again, this is where some of us may have to unlearn something to be able to learn what Paul is saying here, because when we talk about uh, the word prophecy, a lot of us have a lot of different ideas that may pop into our head. Um, we might think of Old Testament prophecies and foretelling the future, like the book of Daniel or, or Revelation in the New Testament. But we're going to see here that Paul has something different in mind, um, that when you compare the Bible to the Bible, not movies and books and other things that we kind of have with our imaginations, Paul's talking about something completely different. In verse 19, he starts out with the word quench. Now, this word quench is, is related to fire, and, and it's used specifically to denote the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Right, The Holy Spirit's fires is something that we see in the book of Acts, for instance. And in the context, he goes on to say that this activity here that, that people are quenching is prophecy. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Now, Paul's exhortation here, it, it, it presupposes to us that it's, it's possible to stifle the, the utterances of the Spirit. It is possible for us to quench prophecies. 
okay? And in 1 Corinthians 14, the utterances of Christian prophets are controllable by the prophets, right? They're not some uncontrollable, just ecstatic utterance that they make. In Paul's mind, these are things that are completely controllable. The danger, it appears, in Thessalonica, however, is that the prophetic utterances were being stifled altogether. The church had decided, hey, we, we don't want to hear any of that. We're, we're, we're just going to dismiss everything. And, and there's a couple of examples of this happening in Scripture. Uh, one, you can find it in Old Testament in Amos 2.12. There the people of Israel are condemned because they commanded the prophet saying, you shall not prophesy. Right? They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear what God had to say. And so they were telling the prophets, stop prophesying. Right? In, in other words, they were quenching the spirit. They, they did not want to hear from God. You also see it in Numbers 11.28, where Joshua says to Moses regarding Eldad and uh, Medad, my, my Lord, Moses, stop them from prophesying. Right here, here's Joshua with Moses. They're in charge. They're the leaders. But out in the camp, there's these two men who God is speaking through, and Joshua's jealous. He's like, "Tell them to stop, Moses. You're you're the one that's supposed to be speaking for God." To which Moses replies, "I wish they would all hear from the Lord and speak from the Lord." And again, here's where some of us may have to unlearn what we think the word prophecy means because according to Paul's teaching on prophecy to the Corinthians the main purpose of Christian prophecy is not to divine the future it is not to divine the future but rather it is for strengthening encouragement and comfort speaking the words of God to bring strengthening encouragement and comfort, and with a special emphasis on the role of building up the community. Right? That, that's what prophecy biblically is all about. And Paul tells us in verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So how are we to test these prophecies? The, the main way we find in the New Testament to test is if their confession is that, the, that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That, that every prophet that is prophesying must be declaring that Jesus Christ is the Lord. In other words, they're declaring the gospel. They're, they're declaring the truth that God came to earth as Jesus to live and die a perfect life, and that he is the Son of God. Later, John clarifies this, and he adds more details. To confess Jesus as Lord, among other things, is to confess his incarnation. Therefore, every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, John says. Right? This is what a Christian prophet would look like. Someone who is proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Pointing people back to Jesus. 
Talk about comforting and encouragement. This isn't about someone walking up to you and telling you what your future is. As if they're a divine future teller, fortune teller. Right? This is about preaching the word of God. Testifying to the word of God. Pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In contrast, in 1 John 4, 3, the prophet who denies the identity of Jesus' Nazareth, Nazareth, as the eternal Son of God, is shown to be inspired by the spirit of the Antichrist. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, it is ultimately the spirit who enables the person to determine the genuineness of word or deed done in the spirit. This morning, Jamie started out our worship service, right? What was he doing? He was asking the spirit to enable us and empower us and to help us to worship. That same spirit is what helps us discern prophecy. We need that spirit in our life, empowering us and enabling us, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12.10. Another way we see from church history that you should test prophecy. There's a, a, an early church document dating somewhere around the 1st or 2nd century. Um, it's called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And I love what it says about prophecy. It says this, But if anyone should say in the Spirit, Give me money, or anything else, don't listen to them. But if he tells you to give on behalf of others who are in need, let no one judge him. So clearly, at the time of the early church, there was already a problem of people taking this idea of prophecy going, oh, well, I can pad my pockets with this because I'm the man of God. I'm the one preaching the word of God. And, oh, you know what? The Lord just told me to give. You should give me a BMW. That's what the Lord just told me. I'll be looking forward to the key. All right, that, that, that's a, that was a problem that had, that had developed. And that's what happens when we don't test everything. Verse 21 says, hold fast to what is good. The, the command to hold fast to what is good explains what, what is to be done positively with these prophecies or the deeds and words tested and found beneficial? In other words, after we test that prophecy, after we test that preaching of the word, that proclamation of the gospel, we're to hold fast to what is good. They're to be accepted. They're to be made normative for the Christian, for Christian behavior. On the other hand, In case anything should fall outside of Christian norms, Paul instructs his readers in verse 22 to keep away or abstain from every kind of evil prophecy. That's what he's talking about here. This is where this verse has gotten lifted out of context. Right? So we're to hold on to the good prophecies and we're to reject the evil prophecies. Abstain from every form of evil, he says in 22. And again, this is where I think some of us will have to unlearn what this verse means so that we can really learn what it actually means because we've heard it used and misused so many times. 
It's been misunderstood and misused and then overused incorrectly throughout church history. And this is mainly because of an unfortunate word choice in the King James Version. Where it says the appearance of evil. It doesn't mean to abstain from everything that might appear to be evil. That's not what this verse is saying. But to abstain from every form of evil prophecy. Any kind of prophetic word or teaching that is evil, that we are to abstain from every form and fashion. Because see, here's the thing. Over time, evil gets presented in lots of different ways. There's lots of trends and fads that come along and just twist the word of God. And we as believers have to test it, but then reject it. To abstain from it. Sadly, I talk to so many people that they don't understand this. And this verse has been used against them. And they're, they're persecuting themselves just unmercifully because of this faulty interpretation. They're constantly worried, did what I do look evil? Did it appear evil to anyone? And and they live in this state, even though what they're doing is not evil. But did it look evil? Did it look bad? And they're, they're racked with guilt over something that they have no need to be guilty of. I mean, after all, trust me, in some way or another... Almost anything one does can be misinterpreted as the appearance of evil. It doesn't matter what you do, there is somebody that can look at that and go, oh, that, that looks evil. And if you live by that standard, you, you are going to be a miserable Christian. But praise God, that's not what this passage is saying. That's not what this passage is talking about. And let me be the first to say, I've been just as guilty to misunderstand and misinterpret this passage is maybe some of you this morning. And I've thrown this verse out in a, in a haphazardly way, not really understanding what Paul was trying to get at. We need to be free from the bondage of this misinterpretation of this verse. Because again, there are people that use this verse to make baseless accusations against people claiming that even though no evil was done it appeared to be evil and therefore that's enough for you to be guilty as if you had actually done evil and paul is saying here when it comes to prophecy there is a twofold error that we make that there are two ways that we tend to err in the, in the prophetic words that are used in the church. For some, they're deceived by false prophecy in the name of God. In other words, a, a person who claims to be a spokesman of God says, thus saith the Lord. And, and they are convinced and they're deceived from that. Or from knowing that many are commonly deceived by prophecy. And so the first error is to just reject every kind of prophet, prophecy indiscriminately. And then there are those 
who foolishly embrace without distinction every prophecy that is presented to them in the name of God. And Paul is saying both of these ways is faulty. You're not to reject everything and you're not to accept everything. Christian, there is a middle road here. And and this is what Paul is calling us to. Because both of these ways, Paul says, are faulty. First, through their prejudice, the first group shut out everything God may be speaking to them. And second, the second exposes themselves to, to every wind of error that blows into the church. Paul instead, again, is calling us to a middle path between these two extremes. He prohibits them from condemning and dismissing any prophecy without first examining it. And he encourages them to exercise judgment before receiving every prophecy. Every time you go and hear the word of God spoke, every time you come to church on Sunday morning, You should not walk out of this building going, oh, well, Dale said it, or Jamie said it, or whoever was standing here said it. No, you are to test everything. You are to to question everything. But that which is found to be true, you are to hold on to it, as he says. And that which you find is untrue, you abstain from it in every form. This is what Paul is calling us to do in this passage. To not be so prejudiced that we just dismiss anything that the Spirit might tell us. But also to not just accept everything that someone claims to be a word of God is a word of God. We we have to test the prophecies. Now, just... Logically speaking, God is not going to contradict himself, right? I, mean, I think it's something we, most of us can agree on. God is a God, he's perfect. Now, I'm imperfect, so I will contradict myself. But God is perfect, and he's not going to contradict himself. And he has given us his word so that we might be able to measure all prophecies by. And God is never going to tell us to do or say anything that goes against what he's already written in his word. There's nothing new that he's going to be adding to it. Now, that being said, sometimes I use an illustration about one of God's truth and I apply it in a modern day way that makes you go, oh, I am guilty of that. I can see how I do that now. That's God using the gift of prophecy to speak truth directly into your context the truth didn't change right i I go back and read commentaries from 200 years ago almost every sermon illustration is an agricultural example now if i if i use that for most people they're not going to get it i i have to find ways to contextualize the truth that doesn't change into something that will make sense and connect with you That is all a Christian prophet does. He takes the truth of God's word and he applies it to your life. So that's what Paul has to say on prophecy. The second 
section of this scripture is 23 through 24, Paul's prayer and promise. The, the prayer and promise we see from Paul. He's turning his attention here to closing, uh, closing prayer to the book and, and just an amazing promise that we see. And some theologians argue that Paul's benedictions or, or kind of wish prayers that he makes at the end of these books, that they function as summaries of the preceding section of the letter, or in this case, it's a short letter, so the preceding uh, letter. And man, verse 23 fits that perfectly. It, it sums up the dominant theme of the whole letter and its instruction for Christian living. Paul is, is telling this young church how to live as believers. And it, it's, it's Paul's call on God to aid the readers to be able to continue in their spiritual progress. This would be so reassuring to the Thessalonians to remember, because remember, they're under persecution. And for them to be reminded that they were under the protection of God, no matter what their circumstances might hold. He who calls you is faithful, Paul says. He will surely do it. Verse, back up a verse, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Followed by, He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. What confidence that that must have brought to this young, fledgling church who's being persecuted. At the same time, we see Paul taking up the, the theme of Christ's return, which played a major role in chapter 4 through 5. For Paul, the ultimate goal of Christ's return is, is leading to their complete salvation. And I, I say complete salvation, meaning that the day in which that salvation is finished, it's accomplished. It's already begun, but it is not until the Lord returns that it is completed in the lives of of these church members. Paul is praying that God would do something now, not just in the future. Namely, to, to make us increase and abound in love for one another. Paul wants us as believers to be growing in our care and concern for each other. And the goal of this progressive work is in us now. Not just when the end comes, not just when everything is perfect, but, but this progressive work, is, it should be happening now in our lives. That we might be established before God in holiness. Because love is the essence of human holiness. Paul teaches us that God is the one who is sanctifying us now. And notice that he does it through prayer. <laughs> Here, but, but no matter how God does it, no matter how slowly it comes, no matter how imperfect we feel, 
The main thing is that God does it. And he will do it. This is the ground of our assurance this morning. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it, Paul says. Assurance doesn't come from us trying to make ourselves holy. I would argue the opposite of assurance will come from you trying to make yourself holy. (laughs) You will constantly realize how far you fall short, making you live in constant fear of God. But holiness comes from knowing that God is faithful. That he is faithful to finish what he starts. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that this isn't left up to you and me. (laughs) But instead, we have a God who is for us, who loves us, and who is faithful. The last section we have in this book, verses 25 through 28, I entitled Prayers and Kisses. Verse 25 says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul begins his closing remarks with a request for prayer. This this gives the the listeners of this letter, an immediate opportunity to do what? To apply everything he's been teaching them, right? So, so Paul is giving them an opportunity. The, the, it's almost like the application questions in our small group, right? But Paul's saying, okay, you all should be praying unceasingly. You should be praying for one another. You should be praying for the lost. And then in the book, he's like, all right, now pray for me. <laughs> right? He, he wants an immediate response to what's been taught in the book of first Thessalonians but not only that it also serves to humanize Paul doesn't it if you think about it this makes him more approachable and this is something I think a lot of us some of us maybe struggle with we love to pray for other people but we don't necessarily want people praying for us. Now, don't get me wrong, when something major goes wrong, yeah, sure. But day to day, throughout our life, we want to think we got it. And it's amazing to me here that we find Paul, who's arguably one of the people who got it the best, (laughs) is saying, hey, pray for me. Don't don't forget to pray for me because I need it. For some of us this morning, this, this this is an important lesson that we need to learn. That we don't got it. Doesn't matter what our role is, what our job is, what our socioeconomic status is, we all need prayer. And Paul's reminding this church that just by the simple ask for himself, pray, pray for me. And this, to me, makes him so much more approachable. 
You know, it's, it's hard to go up to somebody and say, hey, would you pray for me? When they always act like they've got it together. When they, when they just pretend that nothing is ever wrong. But, but when a person is open and honest and humble saying, hey, I need prayer too. It's a lot easier. It's, they become a lot more approachable to go to. Him, Timothy, Sylvanius, they, they all stand in need of prayer. In verse 26, we find that what will become a, a standard item in Paul's letters, the holy kiss. You see it in 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, Romans 16, 16. You also see it in 1 Peter 5, 14. And basically, this, this was how guests were greeted. So when a guest would come over to your home, you would greet them with a kiss. This was a non-romantic kiss. This was just strictly a a show of familiarity, right? For, like for us, it's a step beyond the handshake. For most of us, we would probably consider it the hug, right? There are lots of people that you would walk up to and you would shake their hands, but there's not as many people that you would just walk up to and hug. And, and when you think about it, the early church met in homes. And, and so you would have and you would invite over friends, family to your house, to which you would greet with a holy kiss. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that some of the customs of family hospitality at that time were carried over into the practice of the Christian assembly. Especially because Christians saw themselves as a family. Right? We, we are the family of faith. The kiss is to be holy, probably on the cheek rather than on the mouth. And, and this was a way in which we just showed the rest of the world that, that we are family. And so it became known as a holy kiss. What was a normal standard greeting was redeemed into something holy. In verse 27, we see Paul telling, charging them, put, like forcefully, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And this probably suggests that by this time, there were already multiple house churches in Thessalonica, multiple groups of believers meeting together. And Paul wants to make sure that they all get the entire message. So he's like, hey, you, you read this in your house church, and then you send it on down the road to the next one, and to the next one, and to the next one. And that, that's how letters disseminated throughout this time. And the final words in verse 28 are simple and direct. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with The grace of Christ is for all of the Christians in Thessalonica. And Paul wishes grace for all of them. And again, if you've been around since the beginning of us going through this book, you'll, you'll know that 
that grace was so needed because of the persecution that they were experiencing. The trials that they were suffering for the sake of the gospel. Some of them were probably losing their jobs. Some may have even lost their lives because they believed in Jesus Christ. And Paul ends this letter, this this affectionate pastoral letter, by wishing them grace. And like Paul this morning, I want to do the same thing. Because each and every one of us need this same grace in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 1 Thessalonians. Thank you for giving us this word, Lord. And Father, I pray that If after hearing this message or, or this series of messages, God, there is, is anyone here that does not know you, that, that hasn't put their trust in you, that hasn't experienced this grace that Paul is talking about. Father, I pray this morning would be the morning that they would put their faith in you. Because as Paul said, you you are faithful to not only save us, but to sanctify us. And we praise you for that, Lord. And Father, some of us here this morning may be struggling with a level of pride in which we don't want to ask for prayer. We don't want to ask for help, Lord. I pray that you would break down those barriers in our life so that we might be the family of God for one another and that you would draw us closer to you but also to each other in the process. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name.